Well, this morning, uh, we're going to open to the Psalm, Psalm 32, so I encourage you to open there. But before we read, please uh, just bow with me in a word of prayer. Lord God, it is our desire that we honor you with our lives. This, Lord, is the purpose for which you have called us. You have given your Son in order that we would be cleansed from sin, that we would be new creatures. And we want to thank you for that. And this morning, Lord, as we consider your word, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand its message, to grow in clarity about what you have done and how you have redeemed us and what you want from us. Lord, please, this morning, grant us ears to hear. Grant me, Lord, words to speak and clarity of mind in order to convey your word, your word for instruction, that we might grow in Christ-likeness. Be with us this morning, we ask, for your name's sake. Amen. You may have heard of John Randolph of Roanoke. He was an early Virginian congressman and a statesman. And on his deathbed, he was kind of chatty on his deathbed, but on his deathbed, there was a little time where he was quiet. And he had in his room with him a doctor and his assistant. And suddenly, while he was quiet, suddenly he arose and he said, remorse, remorse. And he repeated it three times. The last time in a loud voice, remorse, remorse. He asked the doctor for a dictionary so he could see the word remorse. And there was none. So he asked the the doctor to take a piece of card and write on one side of it the word remorse, which he did. He took the card in a hurried manner and he looked at it with great intensity and he said, write on the back, write the same thing on the back. And so he took it and he wrote it on the back and he gave it back to him again. And he was very agitated. And he said, remorse. You have no idea what it is. You can form no idea of it. Whatever. It has contributed to me, to my present situation. But I have looked to the Lord Jesus Christ and hope I have obtained pardon. Now let my assistant John take your pencil and draw a line under the card, under the word on the card, which was accordingly done. And the doctor said to him, what am I going to do with this card? And he said, put it in your pocket. Take care of it. When I am dead, look at it. The Bible tells us that each of us have sinned. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sin in our lives. Elements of our past that we can look back on and have remorse for. And it is easy, isn't it, to let the weight of that sin drive us to despair, to be so filled with remorse that it floods our mind and it destroys our joy. But it is sin that robs us of our joy. It is sin that reduces us to misery. And I'm sure you're familiar with the many people in Scripture whose lives have ended in misery, or whose, who the Bible tracks as a, a pathway of misery. For instance, the young man in Proverbs 7, when Solomon traces him, he says he follows this harlot as an ox to slaughter. 
as one in fetters or or bonds is, is dragged to the discipline of fools until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Or perhaps you remember the prodigal son who having squandered his inheritance on sin was reduced to sharing the food of the very pigs that he was paid to feed. Or Joseph's brothers, who betrayed him, of course, to slave traders, and years later, standing before the most powerful man in Egypt, and maybe the world, was told by that man, I am your brother, Joseph. And suddenly, their guilt and their remorse comes back with force. And they could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Or David, who took Bathsheba, he slept with her, She became pregnant. He called back her husband from the battlefront and tried to get him to go down and cover up for his sin. And he sent him back to the front lines carrying his own death sentence. After Uriah is dead, he takes his wife as his own wife. He takes her in. Nine months pass from the time that David commits this adultery with Bathsheba And then Nathan the prophet comes to David. A baby is born and probably on the same day Nathan approaches him and he confronts him with a legal case in which David is called to judge between two men, a rich man and a poor man. And this rich man takes his neighbor's only ewe lamb and kills it and not his own for a guest. And David rightly argues for the case of the poor man. And Nathan, and he rightly judges this rich man and he he sentences him. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. David, on hearing that, recognized his sin and he repented. And he received forgiveness of his sin. We read of his forgiveness and his repentance in Psalm 51. The understanding that we have is that After David wrote Psalm 51, he wrote Psalm 32. So Psalm 32 is a psalm that follows Psalm 51. Psalm 51, you know, is a great psalm of repentance in which David is pouring out his his heart and his sin before God, seeking God's forgiveness, and then he follows it. And in Psalm uh, 51, he says there, he says to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation, or of your salvation, hold in me a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. So David, upon confession, says to the Lord, if you restore my salvation to me, I'm going to go out and I'm going to instruct people. I'm going to tell people your ways. And this psalm is really the beginning of that instruction. It says there, let's read the passage, Psalm 32. It says, blessed is the one, sorry, Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up 
as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess the transgressions of my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As we begin our psalm, we're really given here six steps to take us from misery to joy. Six steps to take us from misery to joy. Step one, we're going to look at in just a moment, but before we do, just as we look at the very first words of the psalm, it says, a masculine of David. The word maskil comes from a Hebrew word meaning to instruct. So really, this is David's instruction to us as to from, from what he learned when he went through his sin. When he went through that period of time of sin in his life, this is how he would now instruct us having gone through that time in order that we would live in a way that brings honor to, God, to the Lord, in order that we will, he will teach us as transgressors to return to his ways. This is David's instruction to us, his masculine. Step one in our journey from misery to joy is really to recognize the benefit of righteousness. And he begins here in the first two verses saying, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice a couple of things. First of all, the word blessed only occurs twice. But in Hebrew poetry, it's really assumed in the second lines of each of those verses. So there's four blessings here. Four blessings that we are to recognize that help us to see the benefit of righteousness. The first one there is to recognize the, is the blessedness of forgiven transgression. Notice also, not only is it the word blessed, but there's also three words for for sin, for transgression. He uses the word transgression, he uses the word sin, and he uses the word iniquity. So the idea is he's trying to cover every element of our past, present, and future sin. It's a comprehensive look at our sin. So the blessedness of forgiven transgressions. Now, a transgression, is the, this carries the idea of rebellion, Okay, the idea of a transgression is what David had done. Knowing the law, knowing the line that God draws in the sand, and deliberately stepping over it. These are conscious sins. Sins that we are aware of. Sins where our conscience plagues us and tells us and convicts us of the wrong that we have done. 
It says in Romans 2 that our conflicting thoughts accuse us as we know the law and we know our sin. And he's saying that blessed is the one whose rebellion, whose outright transgression, whose hostility to God's law is forgiven. And the word forgiven has the idea of being carried away, not present. See, our sin, our rebellion is clear in God's eyes. He sees it. It is clearly in his presence. And he chooses to carry it away, to take it away from his his knowledge and his understanding and his presence, to forget it deliberately. It's carried away. It's not available. There's a blessedness here because here is the law, here is the legal condemnation even that our own conscience will give us, and it's carried away. There's a blessing that comes from that. There's also a blessedness of covered sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. So this could refer to sin that we know about or sin that we don't know about. Often this will refer to the sin that, is, that we don't often see in ourselves, but that other people see in us clearly. Sins like arrogance or pride, self-centeredness, the lack of empathy, or identification with somebody who who deserves our emotional support and encouragement. These are the kind of sins that that he has in mind here. And he's not notice that he's saying, Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. That is that they're not in the open. I mean, you think of a, a stain on the wall. Right? How do you get rid of the stain on the wall? It needs to be covered. So you get a, a roller and a paintbrush and you roll over it and you cover it. It's gone. You cannot see it anymore. This is what he's getting at. There's a blessing when the sin that, de- that defiles us is covered over completely by God's grace. This means that before God, we are blameless. Before God, there is no fear of condemnation. Our conscience convicts us of nothing. Those around us would convict us of nothing because our sin before God has been covered. There's also a blessedness of imputed righteousness. See, the word iniquity has this idea of objective guilt, often that we can't even feel. I mean, there's a, there's a subject of guilt, isn't there, that we feel, but there's an object of guilt, and that's really the guilt that we need to bear in mind. It doesn't matter whether we feel guilty as much as whether God sees us as guilty. And so here what he's saying is that that guilt, there's a blessedness of that guilt being not counted against us. And when he's not counting that guilt against us, he's he's counting righteousness to us. This is the guilt that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 6.5, as he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He's talking about the least of sins. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. See, he, he feels his, the guilt of association. Even though he may not have done the things that the people around him have done, there's guilt imputed to him just because he's there among them. And on top of that, we still have the sin nature. And what he's saying here is that God, there's a blessing that comes when God does not count any of that, even the unrighteousness of the sin nature against us. This blessing comes through Christ. This blessing 
is really the, what it means to have Christian freedom. There's also a blessedness of a spirit free from deceit. And he says there, in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, this is the soul of one who has nothing to hide. His spirit is free. He's got no hidden agendas. He's got no manipulation that he's trying to achieve with somebody. No ends of his own that he wants to, to, to extract from somebody. He's got nothing to hide. No skeletons in his closet. He speaks the truth and he's not in it for his own sake. This is the heart of one whose spirit has no deceit in it. And David said in Psalm 51.2, sorry, 51.6, that God desires truth in our inward parts. See, this is the way God wants us to walk. There is a blessedness that comes from walking this way. And that's what he's saying in this, in this verse, is that, We need to recognize that the state of having all of our sin removed gives us blessing, gives us great benefit. We need to recognize that blessing, that benefit that comes from forgiveness so that we can move on and then go to step two in in our process in terms of going from misery to joy. Remember or recognize the benefit of forgiveness. And secondly, remember the burden of sin. And here, David is taking what happened for that nine-month period. And we might ask, well, what happened to David in that nine-month period? What was it like for him living, having committed adultery, having murdered her husband? What was it like for David? And here in verses three and four, he tells us, this is what it's like to live under the burden of sin. See if you can identify with him. It says there, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He points out four things here. First of all, the weight of sin. He says, when I kept silent, this, this, this keeping silent is really the idea of causing deafness. You see, it, it kind of implies that when we sin, there's an expectation that God has on us to come to him, confess our sin, and turn from it. And so here's God waiting for David, who's committed this great sin, to come and seek forgiveness and confess his sin. And as he listens, he hears crickets. There's nothing. See, David causes deafness. There's there's no sound where there should be sound. Where there should be confession, he was silent. And this is really what causes the weight of his sin and and the, the power of God's chastisement upon him. See, what happened when he kept silent? First of all, it says there, his bones wasted away. The word means literally to become brittle. Or, and you remember in, in, in Psalm 51, David said to restore to me the, the, you know, the broken bones, heal the broken bones of the chastisement I've received. See, his bones under the weight of sin became uh, uh, brittle and they broke easily. And there's a kind of a metaphorical sense here. And he's talking really about a, a weariness and a wasting away. See, his sin wore on him. It wore out his bones. It made his frame become weak. 
The body cannot bear the burden of sin. We were not designed to live under the agony of unconfessed sin. God created us to live in relationship with him, in right relationship with him. Our bodies are not designed to to live under this kind of burden. It ages the body. It wears it out. Our secrets ought not to be carried, but to be confessed. And so there's a misery that comes with sin. So there's the weight of sin and the misery of sin. He says, this happened, this, this wearing away happened through my groaning all day long. And this pictures his distress. You know, the idea is that he was, he was crying out. And we think of our sin often as very little things. And it starts that way, doesn't it? You can think of it as a, think of a go back in time, think of a uh, like medieval village with walls around it. This village hears that an army is on the rampage, is, is marauding, you know, hundreds of kilometers away. And they, they say, well, that's, that's pretty bad. I hope it doesn't come here. And they carry on with life. And then they hear the news that it's coming this way. Oh, it's not so good. But they carry on with life. What can you do? You, you can't very well run away. We've got, you know, where do you go? You see the army approach on the horizon. And now you start to feel the difficulty. You start to sense that life is not going to be the same like this forever. But even so, in the village right now, you must continue on. Life has to go on. You still cook your food. You still talk together. You still spend time with those you know and love. The siege begins. Life gets harder. Food is cut off. It becomes scarce. Difficulty sets in. The pressure builds. The difficulty in the land becomes, in the, in the town, becomes oppressive and heavy and difficult until the walls give out. The siege overcomes the village and the calamity strikes and the enemy comes into the town, does what they do, destroying, looting, and all that is left is the sound of distress and emotional agony. This is how sin assaults our souls and our bodies. It starts off small. It starts with a whisper. But it goes, it becomes heavy. It weighs upon us. It weakens us. It causes us to be easily broken. See, David's lack of confession affected his body. It became a heaviness, a burden in his life. And not only was it the weight of his sin, it was also the weight of God's discipline upon him. He says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This is God's hand. And God's hand is a wonderful help when it lifts us up. But it is a terrifying thing when it crushes us, when it weighs down on us. You remember, of course, in the the land of Egypt, The hand of God fell upon Egypt. God said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And you'll remember what he did. You'll remember the plagues, the destruction, how that almost ruined Egypt completely and how as for centuries afterwards, it was still recovering. You see the hand of, the, of, the, of God heavy upon the Philistines as they took the ark back to their Ashdod, to Gaza and to Ekron, and they got afflicted them with tumors, and it says that his hand was heavy upon them. 
In both cases, bad things happen. And God, God's hand comes upon us too to discipline us, to chastise us, to bring change. You see, God doesn't want us to continue in the way that we've been going. He wants us to change. So his hand comes upon us, as well as the weight of our own sin, in order to bring us to a point where we confess our sins, turn from it, and change. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. See, the hand of God is is intended to cause us to repent. Here we see it sapping the strength of David. And so we see the weakness of the sapped soul. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Literally, he says there, my, my juices were churned or turned in the heat of the day, in the heat of summer. If you ever had one of those summer days where you've got, you know, not very many things to do perhaps and, and the sun is just, it's like 100 degrees outside and you're just, and the air conditioning's broken. <laughs> it always happens. And you, and you just find about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right, you're, the heat has just sapped the energy from your body and you're feeling the weakness in you. This is how... David describes himself under the weight of his sin and the hand of God's chastisement. His strength was sapped. Spurgeon said that unconfessed transgression, because remember, that's what this is. When I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sin, that's what causes this. So Spurgeon says, when unconfessed transgression, like a fierce poison, dried up the fountain of the man's strength and made him like a tree blasted by the lightning or a plant withered by the scorching heat of a tropical sun. Doesn't it remind you of Jonah? God's caused the, the plant to spring up and then he caused a, the sun, the heat of the sun to come and, and wither it. So too, the soul becomes weak and loses its vitality under the pressure of our sin and God's hand. Remembering this burden, David is recalling that sin is a burden. Sin is a great weight. It's unpleasant, causing the body to waste away. It is, um, it is distressful. It's causing him to groan. It's heavy as God's hand weighs him down to drive him to repentance and humility. It is sapping, removing the very vitality and enjoyment of life that he's had. Why did this happen? Because he kept silent. Because he did not confess his sin. So after recognizing the benefit of forgiveness and remembering the burden of sin, we need to resolve the basis of our, of our guilt, which is our sin. Remember in verse 1, David uses those three words for sin. He says transgression, sin, and iniquity. Well, he uses the same three words again here. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The idea here is that he is causing God to know. He's not admitting to himself that, oh, well, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. That's not his point. He is deliberately revealing his sinful activity to God. 
before God. He is providing a self-accounting. He's making known what he previously tried to hide. He is reversing the keeping of silence in verse 3 and making his sin known. So he, he resolves, first of all, to no longer, not only to make his sin known, but also to no longer cover his sin. Do you remember the word covered in verse 1? Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Well, here David acknowledges that he's been covering his own sin. He recognizes that he's been trying to hide from God what cannot be hidden from God. You know, imagine in the middle of the night waking up and smelling gas. What do you do? Do you go and find some perfume and spray it around and hope that that will cover the smell of gas? But that's what our attempts to cover our sin are like. It doesn't solve the problem. It really makes us think maybe it doesn't smell quite as bad. But the reality is that the problem is still there. And like gas, our sin can be explosive. The results of it can be calamitous. The only solution is for us to willingly and freely uncover our sin before the Lord. See, God knows how to completely cover sin. So when God sent a flood, he didn't flood just a little part of the world. He covered the tops of the mountains. That's what he does with our sin. He buries it in the bottom of the sea. The best we can do is like, like a pile of firewood, a huge pile of firewood ready to, to burn to heat you. I know that's like, you know, 40 years ago. But, you know, you get this big pile of firewood, it's in your driveway, you get this, and you get a little cover to put over it, and it, it doesn't really keep it dry. That's the best we do with our sin. And instead, David confesses his sin. And he says, I will confess my sin to transgressions rather, to the Lord. To confess, the word confess means to praise God. So if you go to, remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins. Remember that word? The word there, confess, means to agree, to say the same thing. So the idea of confession is that we say, we see what God says about our sin, and then we say the same thing. In the Bible, we find several times where somebody is saying, give glory to God. Confess the sin. You know, when, they, when the Pharisees called the blind man, the man who had been blind, who Jesus had healed, back to the, to the council to interview him a second time, because they thought, of course, that Jesus, because he had healed this man on the Sabbath, that this man was a sinner. And they were asking themselves, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And so they called this man back and they say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. When they say give glory to God, what they're meaning is agree with us that we agree with God that this man is a sinner. So the idea here in chapter, in verse 5, is that he will confess our transgressions, is to say the same thing. This is the idea of calling, coming to terms with our sin on God's terms, calling it what it is. It's like calling a spade a spade. You, you have that saying? It's like what it looks like is what it is. Okay, this means not, uh, and it means a couple of things. One, it means not acknowledging it to yourself, but saying that, and not saying that you made a mistake, but saying, calling the sin what it really is. It's calling alcoholism 
drunkenness, because that's the term that God uses. It's calling your poorly spent time sloth or laziness. It's calling your wandering eyes lust. See, we rename these things. We choose names that make us feel better about them. But we need to call them what God calls them. This is calling your preoccupation with your income greed. Calling your dodgy business practices deceit. It's calling your apathy foolishness. We need to make our sin known to God on his terms. We need to recognize our sin and confess it, agreeing with God about its heinousness, about its evil. And what happens when we do this? You see there in verse 5, that last, that last line, you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's emphatic here. In the Hebrew, it literally says, you, you forgave. He's amazed. You know why? Because when we, the problem with our sin is that it's an offense to God. The irony is that when we bring our sin to God, rather than judge us, he forgives us. See, he's, he's awestruck. He's saying, you, the one who should judge me, forgive. You forgave me my sin. You cleaned it all away. The, the idea of guilt here, again, you forgave the iniquity or the guilt of my sin, is again, that objective guilt. It's not just how we feel, although it covers all of the sin we know we've done and the, the conflicting thoughts of our, con, our conscience, but he also clears away the objective guilt, the record, if you will. Remember we talked before about blessed is the man who God does not count uh, his iniquity against him. There's an, this is kind of an accounting idea. The ledger is wiped clean. Not only is it the things that we know we've done, but the things we don't know we've done. In fact, the very existence, the very essence of our existence is that we have come from, from, from Adam and we've inherited our sin, his sin, and we're guilty before we even do anything because we have that inclination. And even that is carried away, is forgiven. And the word here is the word forgiven, uh, carried away. It's the same as what the word in verse 1 means. In Psalm 103, verse 12, say, the psalmist says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. They're gone. Objective guilt. Gone. God removes our sin from us, carrying them away. He, not only does he remove, does he forgive the burden that should be removed, he also he reverses the effects that we've been feeling. So verses 3 and 4, remember what happened there? The burden of sin, it's gone. Just like Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, after carrying that load for so long, he finally gets to the cross and he unloads it and he feels such a weight off his shoulders. The weight of sin is released with God's forgiveness. The misery of sin is removed. Because the purpose of God's discipline, the purpose of this discomfort, the purpose of the, heart, the, the hand of God even upon us is to drive us to this very point where we take our sin and we ask God to forgive us and cleanse us and create in us a pure heart. And restore to me the joy of my salvation. 
This is the very prayer of David, even in Psalm 51. And now God sets about to strengthen the bones. Now he sets about to reinvigorate the sapped soul. The one who was withered is now reinvigorated. Having been forgiven, this is what God does. But he doesn't do it without us. He doesn't just zap us and say, okay, you're done. Off you go. There's something for us to do because the fourth step is to respond in biblical renewal. So we are to recognize the blessedness of forgiveness, remember the burden of sin, and having resolved the basis of our guilt, we can now respond in biblical renewal. And this is in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, therefore, because God forgives sin, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What is, what is David urging the faithful to do? To pray, to confess sin, to keep a short account. Jesus also urged the disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a short account, and it's a necessary calling on God's grace, moment by moment. And you see, if David was in sin, and he brought that sin to God, and confessed it, and God forgives him, freely, abundantly, graciously, why would he not pray? Why do you and I not pray? Well, there's an irony. The very thing we need to bring to God is the very thing that keeps us from coming to him. Our own sin is what keeps us from him. Our own sin is what keeps us from prayer and from confession. You know, we, have you noticed that the longer you go without praying, the less you want to pray? Have you noticed that the longer you hold on to your sin, the more control it gets on you? See, David is calling us here to have a short account with God. This way, we can bring our sin before him continually. We can continually be removing the burden before it comes, before we even see the army in the distance, before we even hear that it's on the march. We can remove it as a threat from us. The longer you fail to confess, the greater the burden on your soul will become. Before you can, the longer you go, the greater God's hand of chastisement will be upon you. Notice David also says, pray in a time when you may be found. Literally, he's saying at a time of finding. He's saying that there's not always time to pray. We, to, life can be busy, right? And he says, in, in the, he says, you know, we've got to recognize the purpose of a short account. Because he says, surely in the flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. He recognizes that there are times in life that are busy. There are times where we just get swept up in what we're doing. And we don't pray. So he's saying, when we have time, when we have opportunity, take that time to pray. Do this daily. Make it part of your schedule, your routine, to keep a short account with God. Because you don't know how long you've got. We don't know if the Lord will come today. We don't know if some disaster will strike, perhaps a great earthquake, and we'll be busy for days on end dealing with the outcome of that. We don't even know if we will live through this day. If you don't know Christ, now is the time that is favorable. Now is the day of salvation. 
But if we do know Christ, now is the time to confess. Now is the time to bring our burden to him. Because God wants us to maintain a state of being reconciled to him. And this is going to take some diligence on our part. But God is our covering. He says in verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You see, sin wages war against our soul. And it condemns us based on God's law. But God himself, rather than being judge, is the one who wants to be the hiding place for us. Where the law comes to condemn, he shelters. Don't run from God, but run to God where there is true safety. Let God be your hiding place. Let him preserve you from trouble. It is him who keeps us. He does not lose us. He does not let go. He is far better able to cover our sin than we are. God, it is God who delivers us. He says there, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is a victory cry. This is the cry that would be called out once the army is gone and, is victor- and, and the battle is over and you've won the, the war, then this victory cry goes up. You notice what's happening here? God surrounds the psalmist with, with shouts of deliverance. You see, the real battle we face is our sin. It is against the flesh. First Peter, and Peter said in First Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the, from the passions of the flesh, which wage war on your soul. See, the real war is the war against the flesh, but the battle is ours. So Paul said, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The battle is not over until we pass from this life to the next, but we can still have victory over sin. God gives us that victory, and God surrounds us with shouts of deliverance, which is why we can praise him, which is why we can sing songs and give glory to him. The fifth step is to receive the best instruction. After responding in biblical renewal, we're to receive the best instruction. David wrote Psalm 51, you remember, and he said there, when, you, when, you, when the Lord restores the joy of his salvation, then I will teach transgressors your, way, your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. And here he's doing that. He's saying, I'm going to instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But it's not just David who's instructing us here. This is God speaking through David. God, you see, you see, God is wanting to instruct us and teach us. And it's it's an important thing we can't really see here. When he says, I will instruct you and teach you, he's pointing to you individually. See, God will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. How does he do this? Well, he does it in two ways. First of all, uh, we're to receive instruction. I think that's up there, yeah. Uh, We're to receive instruction, but he he says that, um, you know, he gives us his word. He gives us this personalized tutelage or this personalized instruction through his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3.14, Paul said to Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. 
Interestingly enough, the word I will instruct you here in the Hebrew is the same word as the word maskil at the beginning of the psalm. David's saying here, I'm going to make you wise. And here the, Paul is saying, I will make you, the, the word of God is able to make you wise for salvation. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. See, God has given us his word. God wants us to be in the Word, and then by His Spirit, He helps us to understand the Word. We are going to be taught not by, just by the Word, but by His Spirit. And in this way, these two things come together to personalize instruction for you. You've probably been in situations where uh, you've, you've heard a sermon, and it's really pricked your heart, and, and it's like, wow, the Lord is saying that just for me. And then maybe the next morning in your Bible reading, you come across some verse and it's like reinforcing exactly the same thing. And then maybe a few days later, someone says something and it's like, you know what? That's the third time. See, God's instructing us. He's calling us to repent and to obey. See, it does no good for us to be forgiven of our sins and then just go straight back to what we were doing. He's not calling us just to to seek forgiveness and then go back to what you were doing. He wants us to change. He's wanting us to repent. He's wanting us to follow in his ways. So he wants to instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. He wants us to receive instruction. And he he wants us to receive watchful counsel. See, generally the eye of the Lord is seen as a good thing. We read in Psalm 33, where he says there, sorry, I should read the text, shouldn't I? He says there, um, I will you counsel you with my eye upon you. And he's saying there, generally the eye of the Lord is seen as a good thing. So he's saying in Psalm 33, it says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. This is a good thing. And here the eye of the Lord comes with his counsel. And there are two elements of this this eye of the Lord and and his counsel. One is that he's watching you to see if you will obey. He's watching you to see if you will obey. See, he's giving you this instruction so that you can turn. That's why sometimes it comes two or three times. But secondly, when he's watching you as he instructs you, he's also seeing how it turns out. You know, God doesn't give us a blueprint for all of our life and say, go get it. That's, That's the way to go for the rest of your life. It's more like a GPS which Steve is struggling with a little bit, where we, we were driving down a road and we're not quite sure where to go. That's why we have the GPS, right? And it says to us, okay, turn left at the next street. And so we turn left. And then it tells us the next step. See, we don't always get uh, full instructions from God as to how we're to live, but often he will give us step by step. And so his eye is watching us to see what happens, to give us that next set of instructions. Not only are we to receive uh, watchful counsel, but also to avoid needing intervention for stubbornness. And I do believe there may be, look at that, it's not stubbiness, okay? It's nothing to do with beards or anything like that. Avoid needing intervention for stubbornness. So uh, he compares us here to a horse or a mule. He says, don't be like a horse or a mule. And here, he's not just talking to you individually, he's talking to us as a group. And so he's saying that, I mean, and you wonder why, right? And, and here's the reason I think why. Because God will give us individual instruction, and then we'll look at all the people around us, and we'll just go and copy what they do. But God gives us individual instruction. God meets us where we are and wants to deal with the sin we have 
And he wants us to walk in his ways in a way that's going to be different to other people. So he doesn't call us to do this like everybody else. And when we walk in the way of, you know, everybody else, even the even good people, we're being stubborn because we're not walking in the direction God is calling us to. This is the problem with a horse. It needs to be directed. It's going to go off and do its own thing. Fools, it says, despise wisdom and instruction. A horse needs to be led, to be directed. And here the exhortation is not to be stubborn like a horse, not to receive forced direction, but to have a sensitive conscience, to be humble instead of arrogant, to be compliant instead of self-directed, to be obedient instead of needing constant correction. You see, we are to be like a feather in the wind. Blowing wherever the wind takes us. See, as God's instructing us, we should be carried by his instruction where he's leading us. But where I come from in Wellington, there is often a wind, and it's a strong wind. 60 miles an hour is really common. And you walk into these winds, and you're literally walking on the, you know, forward, leaning into the wind, trying to make headway. And isn't that just how we are? As God instructs us, we're going to put our heads down and we're going to walk into his instruction in the opposite direction to what he calls us to walk in. We should be more like the feather, which is wafting wherever God takes us. So we need to be attentive to his instruction, listening, waiting, proceeding with caution, allowing him to interfere, intervene in our lives and to bring his will to pass. And stubbornness finally prevents uh, effective instruction. You'll notice there that he says, um, do not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. You know, the idea here is probably, he's talking probably about the instruction he's just been talking about. Have you, have you found yourself stagnating in your spiritual walk? Have you found yourself not growing without that vigor that you once had? Perhaps it's because God is giving you instruction from his word, calling you to obedience, and you're not doing it. You see, there's a limit to, to how much God will continue to feed us if we're not obedient. And we often will find we stagnate because, again, our sin becomes a burden. God's hand rests upon us, and he's trying to direct us in a different direction. So stubbornness prevents an effective instruction. The last step is to repent and be joyful. So we're to recognize the blessedness of forgiveness, remember the burden of sin, resolve the basis of guilt, respond in biblical renewal, receive the best instruction, and repent and be joyful. And he says there to remember the sorrows of the wicked. He says many are the sorrows of the wicked. Proverbs 15, uh, 13 verse 15 says, The good, good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Or Proverbs 13, 21, disaster pursues sinner, sinners. Sorry, You see, sin leads to more sin. A discussion becomes an argument. An argument becomes a fight. A fight turns into bitterness. Bitterness leads to gossip, to backbiting, and to slander. Don't go down that track. Remember the sorrows. Remember the burden of your sin from verse 3 and 4. Remember the hand of God as it was heavy on you. Don't go there. Resolve not to go there. Remember God's preservation. 
Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. See, it's not to say that the wicked, uh, the righteous do not receive afflictions. We do, don't we? Hardship comes to all. But Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. See, the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in him. He upholds him. He preserves him. The Lord delivers him out of all. But the same Psalm, two verses later, Psalm 34, 21 says, Affliction will slay the wicked. The blessing of the righteous is that God delivers us. We are to clothe ourselves with contentment and rejoicing. Look at what it says in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. This is a command. You know, we, we tend to think of joy and rejoicing as some sort of mystical emotion that comes to us at certain stages randomly. But it's not. This is a command. Be glad in the Lord. Notice, it's in the Lord. It's not in your car, Steve. It's not, in your, it's not in your job. It's not in your family. It's not in your marriage. Those are great things. But be glad in the Lord. You know, no matter how, how good your life is in these other areas, they can never deal with the issue of your sin. They can never deal with this, this burden, this, this wasting away, this groaning, this, this drying up of your soul that happens when you are living with your sin. You know, we could want a whole bunch of things, but what more could we want once we have the Lord? What more should we want when we have the one who made it all, who owns it all? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. So again, rejoice is a command again. You know, the the issue for us is that we don't see the distinction between our sin and God's grace. We don't see the gap between those and how the grace of God applied to us is such an amazing thing. Because if we did, rejoicing would be an easy thing. It would come to us simply. God wants us to have, you know, not just a, uh, a freedom from sin, but a victory over sin, a closeness to him. He wants us to rejoice in him because we have all we need. Charles Simeon was, a, was an 18th century, 19th century preacher. Uh, actually, I think it was 18th century preacher. And he said that, um, you know, in his morning quiet times, in his devotional time, one of the things he purposely sought to do was to discover the depths of his sin. And he did that so that he could equally uncover the grace of God, the riches of God's grace, the ocean of God's grace, so that his little boat of sin would be drowned and swamped in it. So too, if we discover this, the depths of our own sin and look to God's word and look to what God is saying, so too we will see the greatness of God's grace and rejoicing will be easy. And then he says to verbalize the blessings of God. Shout for joy all you upright in heart. If you have an upright heart, what comes out of the mouth should reflect that. Because... Out of the mouth, speak, this mouth speaks out of what fills the heart, doesn't it? So David did not stay down. He committed this sin with Bathsheba. He did not stay in this burden, in this place. When he was confronted with his sin, he repented. He turned from it. 
You know, God does not want us to live in remorse. He does not want us to end our lives on our deathbed crying out remorse. He commands us to be joyful. You might remember in the, in the last battle, C.S. Lewis's book, the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan looks at the children at the end of the story in the last page, and he says, you do not look as happy as I mean you to be. See, God does not want us to be in misery. God wants us to rejoice in him. This is what glorifies him. What, more, what could be more glorious to God than a bunch of sinners, a bunch of people who know their vileness, who then turn around and rejoice because he has granted them grace and freedom and release from their sin and removal of the weight and elimination of the bondage. God wants us to live in rejoicing. If you live, if you can feel the weight of your sin this morning, let it drive you to Christ. Let it drive you to confession and repentance. If you cannot feel the weight of your sin this morning, perhaps you are like the young man who thought he might give the preacher a little bit of cheek. Do you say that? A little bit of, you know, he might be smart. And he came to the preacher and he said, how heavy? You say my sin is heavy. How heavy is it? Is it 40 pounds? Is it 60 pounds? And the preacher said to him, if you took 400 pounds and you put it on the body of a corpse, would the corpse feel it? And the young man said, no, he would not feel the weight because he's dead. And so too, if you do not feel the weight of your sin this morning, it could be because you're dead. God is calling you not to leave here dead, but to rejoice. He wants you to change. He wants you to turn from your sin, come to him. He has abundant grace, forgiveness that never is exhausted. And he wants to give you joy in him. He wants us to be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful because you have made provision for us. We are unworthy, undeserving, sinful people with self-centered ideas and lusts that fill our own pleasures. And Lord, we pray that you would change us, that you would burden us with your discipline and with our sin until we repent. May every soul in this room this morning feel that weight so that we can turn from our sin and receive forgiveness and enjoy the blessedness of forgiven sin, of transgressions that are forgotten. Lord, what a rich blessing you have given to us. May we be people who go from here and rejoicing, rejoicing in your goodness and your grace and in your forgiveness. This morning we ask it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.